I'm Joseph Kiwan, an archivist here at the foundation. I'm Elias Al-Khaj, I'm the architect on the project here. I'm David Korn, for all my friends I'm Dave, and I'm the son of Charles Korn, who has built this building where we are sitting now in 1928, that we have decided in the family, my brother and myself namely, to restore to its uh, past glory and do it as a very modern cultural center. and to become a modern democracy that will be respected all over the world. This movement, I've lived it now for, six, for the last six weeks, and believe me, I've been many times in Manchester Square, even it's not only young people, also mm. people my age. Uh, I'm amazed to see the quality of these protesters. It is unique. I have. Uh, it reminds me one other... A revolution, if you want to call it so. Uh, I was a very young man, I was a student when I lived the famous May 68 uprising in Paris. Wow. Which led to the resignation of Charles de Gaulle. And that has created the Fifth Republic in France, which is still up to now. That was a historical landmark in the history of France. And then we live in a, a democratic system in France where the people elect the president, like in the States. Huh? All this was thanks to the, the, called the May 68 revolution. It was only young people. So this time around... And I you, was with them in the streets. You're, I mean, and I hope I got this right. You're, you're 80 years old. Yeah. So you're... And I'm glad you said that you're going to Martyrs Square because I think all generations yeah. are participating in this moment now. But 1968 is such an important part of French history and protest history in general. You see semblances yeah. of that today in Beirut. Uh, my hope is that it will have the same effect mm. as May 68 had, not only over Europe, mm. the youth of all, I mean, not only in France, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the young people in Germany, in yeah. Holland, in yeah. England, they all protested after May 68, yeah. and they have regenerated their, uh, their systems thanks to that revolution. Mm-hmm. Now, I have been there by, by accident because I was a student in Germany, and I came to Paris and got stuck into this uh, movement, and I participated uh, unwillingly because I, I happened to be there. And now when I go and look at the young people there, it reminds me May 68 because it was mainly young people. Now, there are people my age, middle-aged people in Marshall Square, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but my inner belief is that this thing is, is so pure, so honest, because it's led by young people. Mm-hmm. Elderly people uh, give up easily, get <laughs> tired, uh, have seen worse, and they say, please leave me alone. These young people are fresh, they are old culture, they are all educated, they have seen the world, and they don't accept the old uh, 
prejudice that had been ingrained in every Lebanese. You are Druze, you are Maronite, you are Sunni, you are Shia. And what happened after that? Each leader took this as a, as a party, as a political party. And, and instead of, I believed as a young man that religions bring people together. I was very naive. When Actually, you, religion you, puts yeah. people apart. When you say that, are, <laughs> are you talking about your youth in Lebanon? Yeah. So let's go back to those early years. You were saying that you thought religions can live side by side in a communal arrangement. And I think I understood you right, that you thought religion was an important part of your identity in Lebanon. Today, you don't think that is necessary. I hope that it will not be mm. a dividing element mm. into the national cohesion unity movement that we are we are living now yeah. because i hear people t- talking i hear them embracing each other yeah. even in photos yeah uh, it never happened before yeah mm-hmm. uh, maybe you'll say this is something that won't last i don't know i hope not but i think the young people your age uh, and younger than you have been brought up in, in another mentality because They have been very well educated, and they have been uh, traveling and seeing the world, and they don't accept anymore a middle-aged uh, vision of, of a modern country. And they don't have memories of the Civil War. No, They're I think alien. nobody was born yeah. uh, when the Civil War was yeah. Yeah. I have seen I have seen a lot in my life, and, and I'm very hopeful. Uh, I pray that this revolution succeeds. Because if this revolution does not, I keep calling it revolution, you know, yeah. because I think it should shake the country from its roots up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the history, the economy, the, the culture, everything should be rethought and replanned. And uh, Speaking of roots, mm-hmm. and I think these are the roots that there's no one better to talk to about the roots of this country than you, because your father is central to the beginning of Lebanon's modern history, Charles Kudem. Yeah. And if you could just explain what you mean by uprooting the roots. Are you talking yeah. about re-examining the way your father saw Lebanon? Is it sort of a 21st century uh, reinterpretation of what he saw? Uh, my father came to, the, to, to be a young man when the Ottoman Empire collapsed. And that took 400 years of our history, yeah. which is not a period. And then automatically, we jumped from the Ottoman to the French mandate. Right. Okay. Well, my father was educated in French universities. He had he liked France very much. Yes. But he was a pure Lebanese, a real patriot. So, so he was born at this crossroad between Ottomans and French mandate. Right. And he felt that his countrymen didn't know where they belong. And that's why he said, let me remind my people their roots, their cultural roots, not racial roots, their cultural roots. And then that's why he started to make people, uh, he said, we are no more Turks, we are not French, we are not Turk. We have our own identity. Our own identity starts with the Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians are not something to be laughed at because. They had made great achievements, and people didn't know anymore after 400 years of Ottoman Empire. All people wanted, especially after the famine of First World War, yeah, yeah. uh, that's where he, uh, he lived. Yeah? Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, one third of the population died of hunger, yeah. one third emigrated, and one third survived. Yes. So it was a dramatic moment. It's yeah. even worse, much worse than what we have seen now. So I asked my father, how can I 
bring these people to forget the Ottoman and not to count on the French. Let me tell them about their cultural heritage. So this seems like a deliberate attempt at looking inwards, like a local, a local, a localism yeah. that was not central to this part of the world's history under yeah. Ottoman rule yeah. or even under European yeah. mandatory rule. Do you think that today, a hundred years later, I know I know things have changed yeah. dramatically, yeah, yeah. but do you think there's that similar localism that people are looking inwards and wanting to reform Lebanon? Not really. No. 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 I think this is something to be taken maybe into account, but it's not the main reason. I think people are just fed up now. Yeah. Enough is enough. Yeah. They have seen so many scandals. They have mm. seen the country looted mm-hmm. by the so-called... So it's not a reinterpretation of identity now. It's more just no, a getting no, rid of the yeah. Enough with problems. these corrupt people, yeah. Right. Uh, I don't think anymore we have this problem of identity since people are even giving up their the religious yeah. identity when they are uh, in the uprising in the Martyr Square. If they can give up their religious identity, believe me, they are not going to be pro this or pro that. They want to be pure Lebanese and run themselves in a democratic way. Do you think that your father's attempt was to pacify multiple identities into something... Yeah. It was something harmonious. Yeah, he yeah. wanted to find a cement yeah. to bring these pieces because under the Ottoman Empire, 400 years yeah, of persecutions, it mm-hmm. was not mm-hmm. a, a glorious period. I mean, he thought if I remind them their, their prestigious history, how they founded Carthage, invented the alphabet, and so on and so on, maybe people, the Lebanese will feel proud of their uh, mm-hmm. heritage, of their past, and unite. In spite of I am Maronite, I am Sunni, I am Druze, uh, and so on. So that, I mean, exploring Lebanon's earlier history, why do you think it was such an uphill battle to, to make that identity sort of more central? And, and I ask you because before we started yeah. recording, we were just talking mm-hmm. about, about Malta. Now, Malta, I know it's a very different country. It's I've never sort of, been, but, but I've been almost everywhere in the world except on this little island. That, that, I mean, this little <laughs> island would further west in the Mediterranean, and you see their Phoenician history, it's on display, and they're comfortable with it. And I think they found an, maybe an, an easier way to accommodate that history. And you were saying Tunisia did it to a certain degree. Why was it so complicated for Lebanon to make that a component because we know the Phoenician history, we have Phoenician ruins, we have the Phoenician alphabet. Why do you think it didn't become that sort of pacifying identity? Well, uh, I must add now what I think uh, is somebody that people probably, something people probably forgot. At that time, uh, people thought only, uh, I am, before saying I'm Lebanese, I am Sunni, I am mm. uh, Maronite, I am Orthodox, and so on. Uh, and when my father spoke about uh, the history and the heritage of uh, the Lebanese people, to unite them, to have something in common, mm. uh, cement, as I said, yeah, mm. it was because at the breakdown of the Ottoman Empire and when the French took over, there was a big struggle, I was born, of course, uh, that, that Lebanon is an Arab country, mm. Or is it a Mediterranean country? Mm-hmm. And, and the Christians were accused to be pro-West, yeah. and the Muslims pulling for Iraq or for the Arab countries. So yeah. it, it suddenly took a, a... 
so it kind of sort of sunk into that <laughs> conflict. A religious connotation, right? Uh, that if you spoke about religion, you must be against the Arabs, right? Yeah, right. Because they are Muslim, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, my father and myself keep reminding the Phoenicians were thousands of years before Christianity and before Islam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my father wrote a beautiful poem. I give it to you in French. He said, I wish we were still Phoenician because we were neither Muslim nor Christian. Well, that's funny. <laughs> so he was sincerely looking for a way to, to, unite, to unite the people because we belonged to churches, to, to, to religious ideologies. Mm -hmm. yeah? And in fact, I know because I worked in Saudi Arabia, we call it, we are the people of uh, the, the book and so on. It's all crap. I mean, uh, uh, who still believes in all this? <laughs> and how many people in this part of the world rule their people in the name of God? It makes me laugh. In 2020, there are people still who receive instructions. But you think that, I mean, that was in the back of his mind, yeah. that this is going to be something What can that... I bring these people into a common denominator? Yeah. The common denominator was their prestigious past history. Mm -hmm. Because 400 years of Ottoman, many people, like, like we had this under the Syrian regime, many people sided with the Syrians out of personal interest. Now, this... During the Ottoman Empire, mm -hmm. there were also traitors and people sure. who sided with the Ottomans. Yeah. But I'm going to ask you now just a parallel story about language and localism and dialect. Did your father take a position about the Lebanese dialect? And in a way that was, uh, I mean, we, we mentioned before recording Said, mm -hmm. who's maybe a, a little bit of a... Exaggeration. A, but he did try, yeah. it didn't work, yeah. and he kept pushing until he died. Did your father take a... No, 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 no. It was not his concern. So the concern was really history. Yeah. yeah. And finding a way of making yeah. local communities yeah. live together yeah. in harmony. Yeah. Now... You growing up in, in the 40s and the 50s and your youth, um, I'm just curious, do you remember a Lebanon that was, that was unified to a point? Because I think of the Civil War as the culmination of decades of mismanagement and communities getting increasingly fed up with each other. But I want to know from your perspective as a child... It's, it's a very good question because... I'm witness of that generation. Uh, in the 60s, I had finished my studies as an architect in Germany, came back to the Lebanon. And but let's go even earlier, to your to the 50s, maybe to the 40s. Do, do you remember a Lebanon? In the 40s, I was five, six years old. But that's okay. I'm talking about simple, simple examples yeah. of you grew up in a time, Lebanon's early history. Did you yeah, after the so-called independence, yeah. The so-called independence, yeah. okay, that's a nice... <laughs> that's, yeah. that's not... We had anything yeah. but independence, yeah. Okay, post-43, post-World War II, Lebanon is something new. Mm -hmm. There's a country, mm -hmm. there's... yeah. Do, do, you, do you remember communities being tense back then? Or was it something that really happened later, when the Civil War started? Yeah. It's, I, I said before, it's a very good question, because... I bear witness, being mm -hmm. being already a, a young man in the 60s, mm -hmm. when I came back to Lebanon, it was, I must say, much more advanced on that level, yeah. where people mingled together, didn't care so much about the religious uh, belonging, than when I came back after the Civil War. Oh, so the post-Civil War was more sectarian much worse. than pre-Civil War. Yeah. The hmm. 60s was a golden era in Beirut, not because Beirut was a playground, nightclubs, and so on, because uh, you, can, you could see it in Hamra, West Beirut, 
the people mingle together, mm. Christians, Muslims, and honestly, in the 60s, it didn't make much difference. Uh, people didn't have a grudge against each other for religious reasons. And mm. uh, it was much more international, or let's say, uh, unified than, than after the Civil War. And this I can understand, because the Civil War had atrocities, and each one so the po- uh, blamed the other so, so and po- hated each other. politics was more divisive before the Civil War. Yeah, before the Civil War, the 60s were an ideal period in the history of Lebanon. Hmm. Actually, uh, <laughs> I am a, a, an example of this. At that time, when I married, yeah. I married a woman who, whose father is Iranian and her mother is Palestinian. None of them is Christian. I was going to say none of them are Phoenician. And nobody cared. (laughs) And and nobody cared when I got married. Yeah. Except the church. They said, why the corn boy doesn't come and marry a church? I said, is that what it was? The corn boy? (laughs) (laughs) Several marriages. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, but it it mattered so little, your religion at that time, that me, who is a totally Christian Maronite upbringing uh, at a French university, found nothing uh, shocking nor, nor negative about marrying somebody. Uh, so you'd point the... You'd point in our the, family, it's actually uh, my brother's daughter married an Iranian. But, but you'd point uh, the <laughs> finger more at political divisions then than religious differences. Yes. And post-Civil War, it's the more opposite, religion. more religion. Yeah. And, that, you, and post-Civil War, people wanted just to forget what happened, and that's why they gave up fighting and standing up for their rights. Do you think you now... Know, it's like somebody, leave me alone with this horrible past. Yeah. Uh, and then they started accepting, which is unacceptable. And that's where the mafia took over, hmm. and still until now is ruling Lebanon since the end of the Civil War. But do you think now, 30 years after the Civil War ended, twice as long as the war itself, 30 years, the average protester, do you sense that they're protesting against the Civil War era and post-Civil War? Or do you think they're protesting against what you called 1943, the so-called independence? Are they protesting against the whole thing? I think they don't even give a damn about uh, all these uh, past yeah. things to which we linked ourselves by, oh, yeah. by, by belonging to different sects. Mm, yeah? mm. Uh, we were brought up all... In, 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 as if we were different uh, planets, you know, mm. so, uh, living one next to the other. I think the people today are protesting because they want a democratic country, a clean, honest uh, establishment, and to be to, to live in a decent way, yeah. which is given normally to any citizen in, in any European country. So it really is they, a fresh, they, they, fresh they, they have the Western Europe model yeah. in mind. We want to live like a Frenchman, an Englishman, a German, you know. Yeah. We don't want to be ruled by, by the clergy. We don't want to be ruled by the crooks. Let's go now into your father's career. Mm-hmm. And I, I, to be honest, I know the, I know a superficial understanding of your father. It's an eclectic story. Yeah. And I think your father, if I, if I mm-hmm. may say, his largest contributions were commerce and culture. Hmm. And I want to kind of dive into both. We're sitting in what I drove by thousands of times and never properly took a look, mostly because it's become, unfortunately, an access road yeah, from yeah. Yeah. Tariq Sham yeah. to Adli. And people yeah. use it for a shortcut. Yeah. They don't really yeah. 
park their car but and no, walk on the street. In the road. Yeah. And I love that the cemeteries feed into this building because yeah. I really like this little corner of Beirut. I'm in the Charles Curran Foundation and you're renovating it. It's literally a construction it site now. It finished in spring 2020. But take me back to the years where you grew up in this, in this building and maybe take me back to your father's career. Ford Company and his name are synonymous, right? And uh, literature and culture, they go hand in hand with yeah. the Curran family. What do you remember about your father growing up in Beirut, in this home, in this, that, in that time of history? What are your memories of your father? And I'm curious, did you sense that he was a modern Lebanese history person? Do you think of him in, in history, in a historic context? Or was he simply just your dad and sort of a... No, I think he was more than a dad. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and in fact, I must just put things in perspective. He was born in 1894, and he died in 1963. Mm-hmm. I was only 25 years old, so I knew him. Childhood, you know, sure. it doesn't yeah. count, so a few years. And I left the country at the age of 18 to go and study in Germany, but I always met my father every summer. Uh, he was not a... a father figure or an imposing uh, authoritarian father. Mm. Uh, It has always amazed me how this guy uh, started a career at 18, 19, uh, being the major, the first and major uh, importer of automobiles in the Middle in the Near East. Mm. I always call our area the Near East. I never accept the term Middle East. For me, Middle East is Iran and Afghanistan. We are here in the Near East, we are on the Mediterranean, so in the Near East, I, I just saw in his book, he had 28 branches of his business. 28 branches. 28. So he, in Palestine, yeah. at that time it was called mm-hmm. Palestine, Jordan, Syria, Iraq, and part of Turkey. A young man of 20 started such a business here, and who finally got so fed up with it, that he resigned at 40, gave up the whole business, oh said, from now on, I want to read and write poetry. Oh, so he approached literature later. No. Uh, By the way, that's a nice cameo no from the archivist. (laughs) So let's introduce you again. So (laughs) I like that. That's a good moment. That's what he's paid for. At 14, he started writing. He didn't start suddenly at the age of 14. No. It's the build-up. But his time was eaten by his uh, business. He made it a very successful business, and unlike any other Lebanese, that's why they think the Korans are eccentric, when he had made enough money, he said, thank God I have enough to live now for the rest of my life. So he focused more on literature yes. later in life. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to actually focus now on the archive. Business was for him a mean to, to have his independence. That's interesting. Yeah. So that's all. But it was a mean mm-hmm. to achieve his uh, freedom to write and do what he likes. Can I ask you, Mr. Archivist, Mr. Joe, uh, the earliest writings are at the age of 14. Yes. What, what, what were those writings? Mostly poetry. Poetry. And prose. Okay. But he wrote a few, and, and a few historical books. Hmm. One Atlanta. about the Druze. Yes. But uh, do you read French? I don't. No. I would give you this. One is about the Druze uh, revolt against the French mandate. His most famous book is La Montagne Inspirée, the, about Lebanon. And... Uh, 
and this is about the history of Lebanon, where he wants to show his countrymen how prestigious was the past of Lebanon. So mm -hmm. forget the French, forget the Turks. But it's a very special time in history for a boy growing up in a very rapidly changing environment, because mm -hmm. it's Ottoman Empire, and then it's French Mandate, and then 20 years later, yeah. it's an independent country. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to just speculate that he saw history moving so quickly that he was trying to maybe find a way of pacifying the situation, because this could literally degenerate. And yeah. he saw, he, he looked for ways out. I'm wondering, did that poetry at an early age, was it reflective of Lebanese identity, or was it uh, no, just I sort of school age? As a young man was, whatever yeah. love poems and romantic poems sure. and so on. But when, when did and, it... and then at 18, he became mm -hmm. very involved politically, yes. Okay, so 18 is when he starts... <laughs> and he, pushing start, into he started making speeches on Martin Square, what's called Place de Canon before, against uh, our being included into Iraq. Uh, my father was against this. He wanted an independent country. No French, no Iraqi, no nobody. So he went to Martyrs Square and delivered. He made speeches and somebody shot him and, and the bullet went through his hat and we kept the hat all our life as a souvenir. You're kidding me. Yeah. He oh, was wow. shot at, but he never died. As you know. It went through the hat? Through the hat, just over his head. Because he was making a speech, we want to be independent, and what my father wrote against the mandate, nobody ever wrote against France as he did. Against the French mandate? So, so you're No, because he was very disappointed. Yeah. Uh, he expected, after the, the Ottomans, that the French would bring, you know, uh, enlightened society. And he discovered that it was also corrupt and had the corrupt Lebanese uh, cooperating with them. What he wrote in French, I wish you would read it, is so strong that when the International Committee in Paris wanted to give him the, the International Prize on Poetry for his book, mm. the Foreign Ministry of France uh, interfered, said, we can't, you can't give this book which insults France. Yeah? <laughs> and, and the committee said, we are giving this book uh, the first prize because of the... Uh, uh, literary, literary mm, quality, mm. not for politics. And in fact, the High Commissioner of France at that time, I was told by a friend of my father, not one, he was, he was one time saying, uh, because Karm is Frank, Francophone, yeah? mm -hmm. and he was Francophile, Francophile until he discovered the shortcomings of the mandate, but they were nothing compared to what we are living but now. He's politically active. He's making speeches in Martyrs Square. And he's a businessman hmm? at the same no, time. No, not yet. Well, but he's... Uh, he's he was trying a bit sure. up, right after yeah. that. Yeah. And he becomes identified with the, the struggle for Lebanese identity and also modern history. When you fast forward a bit, by the 1940s, 1950s, he's left the Ford business and he's focusing only on literature. Was his literature meant to persuade Lebanese towards identity? Yeah, the, this famous book that people at his generation even hmm. used to memorize yeah. uh, it was a cry for, for our identity, our independence. So he was, he was dissatisfied with the French mandate. He was naturally opposed to the Ottoman era. And it collapsed anyway. But the modern Lebanese story, the National Pact, Shara Khouri, Riyad Salah, that story, he was not... No, he gave up then. So what do you, can you, from your side, what do you think he was really opposed to when that era began? Because that seems to be the harmonious stage of Lebanon's recent yeah. history. 
What was he upset about? Yes, as I told you, he was very, very hopeful that the French mandate will bring a totally different... Was he personally objecting towards these people? Was it something that he thought... Yes, but not anymore actively. He, he just pulled back from, act, uh, from active mm. life, social life, sat in the tower up there. They called, they called him always. He sat in his white tower, yeah. He received only a handful of friends. Yeah. Oh, so after independence, he would spend most of he his lived, time he here? He up here in the tower, in the fourth floor. He spent all nights writing poetry and, politi- and, and history and so on and didn't want to interfere anymore because he was very disgusted with the people who supposedly brought Lebanon into independence. But let me, let me go further into this. What do you think he was disgusted by? What, what was it about these people or that... The, was it the way Lebanon was born? Is he no, opposed no, to... No, no. no, he wasn't against the, the independence of Lebanon. But he thought that the French would bring something... I like to use this word, a cleaner uh, administration, a cleaner uh, establishment with the local politicians. But as you might suspect, the Lebanese have always been conniving with whoever pays well. So this was a local affair for him. He was disappointed in the local leadership. Not that the French mandate fell with World War II. It's not that. No, but he, he, he found that those who brought Lebanon into the independence were not sincere people. They just were pushed by by the British and so on. Okay. And he was not against the French mandate, but he criticized it, you know. Uh, being French educated, he, he, he related very much to the French culture and he wrote in French, but he did not approve how the French let the country go into into corruption and... So his... his uh, you were talking... I'm talking to you about this because this is what I guessed from... I wasn't born. Sure, sure. Yeah. No, no, you uh, were born. Uh, you were born, right? 1943. Yeah, I was yeah. Three for the, yeah for of course, of course, yeah. yeah. So, uh, in fact, I forgot to tell you, I told you when he was born and when he died, my father, when he resigned from business, was 40. Mm-hmm. It's only two years later that he got married. Okay. He right. was a... Uh, he was retired, so, yeah. to, so to speak, retired, but not retired. He was writing night and day and then receiving his close friends. But he married at the age of 42, and he had four children, me and my brother and two sisters. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know this era except from hearsay. But your interpretation is his, his, uh, he was upset with how the mandate ended. Not he, Lebanon's independence. He was very disappointed that it didn't come up with a better, right. uh, better managed. I mean, my father was an idealist uh, as a poet because poets are, are idealists. Yeah, he imagined. He imagined maybe wrongly, and history proved he was wrong. That independence and and the French mandate would bring a, a better society and a better rule for the mm. country. He discovered that. The French were also corrupt, and the Lebanese corrupt, and they associated together. And he said, I don't want to be part of that. He, he said he's a hermit who lived in his white tower. He didn't want to meddle with anybody. And I have seen letter from him. He said, I don't want my children to be raised in this country anymore. When I die, they should leave here and go and develop. So he really was disappointed. Very disappointed that, yeah. that the independence didn't turn up to, to a modern society. Yeah. And so again... Uh, if you know French, I would let you read what he wrote about the decadence of the mandate, 
the corruption and the yeah. and for an idealist like he was, it was a big disappointment. He didn't want to fight anymore, nor with Charakuri, nor with. They were all actually uh, schoolmates. Yes. They were all from the Jesuit, and the, he knew them all. Oh, so, okay. Michel Shiha was his friend, and so as a writer and as a businessman, who were, who were his sort of his companions? Michel Shiha, he was a very good friend, and yeah. they wrote French poetry together. Well, they wrote together. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. and the, the the first book of poetry that Michel Shiha ever had published was published by my father in his publishing house, the, the the publishing house we had. If you see the first okay. book Michel Shia ever wrote, it was poetry, not politics. Michel Shia was not more he was contributing to the constitution. Right. We have. So was he disappointed with Michel Shia too? Was it? No, he was not very close, but they were very good friends. You know. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, his his friends are well idealists like him. Uh, if you ask me who are his his closest friends, it, it it's funny. Although I didn't know the spirit, I was a young boy. Uh, as I said, when he died, I was in my early 20s. Yeah. A guy called Maurice Ismail. Maurice yeah. Ismail was a great guy who had a vision for Lebanon. Yeah. He wrote about the water, uh, yes. the water yeah. distribution of Lebanon. He, he, he saw the future of Lebanon, anticipated what should be done. He yeah. would sit with him hours up in the tower and exchange ideas. And, uh, and Maurice Ismail was a lawyer, actually. He was his lawyer and became his friend. He was an idealist, like my father, yeah? He got elected as, uh, as deputy in the parliament, and he collapsed in the parliament from a heart attack and died very young. Maurice Ismail was an idealist that very few people know in Lebanon. So his, he related to this man? No, this, uh, you told me who was his Yeah, friend. no, but he, he saw common... No, he had many friends. Most of his friends were writers and artists okay. in Europe, yeah. yeah? Yeah. And some on Lebanon also. Mm-hmm. But the guy in the last year of his life who would sit with him out, and Maurice Ismail was not like my father, a retired guy, mm-hmm. he was younger. Yes. He was an MP, a deputy. Yeah. He wrote books. He was in minister, I think, mm-hmm. minister of planification. He did a great job, yeah, but nobody cared for him because he was clean, he was honest, and had a vision. People so who, who was he spending his time with then? You said uh, he was spending a lot of time with someone. Maurice. Was it Maurice? Yeah, yeah. So even though Maurice died young, that yeah. was his... His well, he was maybe 15 years younger. 15 years younger. Yeah. Okay, so I'm. this is actually a good moment to reflect what's behind you. Your office, which I love. Your office is very comfortable. Your office is a time capsule. I think... Unfortunately, in May next year, this is going to be gone. Well, I, I think you should keep the office. These sofas are my favorite sofas. I don't know how old they are, but these are the... the well, they were that, in my office in Paris. When I left Paris, I brought them here. Good. I think I, I'm going to take them when you leave again. This is my my sofa now. And behind you, I think it's maybe a... It's kind of like what you would imagine Instagram looked like before Instagram. Yeah. You have yeah. hundreds oh, yeah. of photos. Oh, that's a very good yeah. uh, Sort of put together. I don't have my Instagram is, as an architect well... Yeah, defined. Yeah, well, yeah. My I mean, brother, yeah. my brother is more fantasy. Look, he sticks them in anyway. the founders of Instagram yeah, probably visited this office and thought they could do this. Yeah, either by his writing or mm-hmm. by how he puts his. Uh, but I like that you have. I mean, you have modern history. There's a picture of what's happening now with the family, revolt. friends, and uh, you also have photos of of yourself and your your siblings, and you have 
photos of your father and your mother. And there's a photo of the building. And I think the building is actually quite important to reflect on because there's nothing like this in Lebanon, this type of architecture, which is why I want to ask the architect. <laughs> yes. Can you tell me a bit about the building itself and not necessarily the renovation today, but more of the style of architecture and how it relates to architecture in general? Because I, I mean, this could look like a church. Correct. It could also look like a, like a skyscraper from the 30s or 40s. True. So what is, what is the story of the building itself? Well, the story of the building uh, really dates back to when Charles Quorum went to New York hmm. uh, back in the 20s. When he visited New York, this was at a time when Art Deco, which is a very important phase in architectural history, was at its prime. It was at its pinnacle in the United States, specifically mm-hmm. in New York. So when you mentioned that the building uh, resembles somewhat of a church, it has this stepped, uh, very vertical pull. Yeah. And when you look at the building now in proportion to its neighboring buildings, it's relatively small. But That's true, yeah. At the time, this was the tallest building for uh, many, many years. Until 1960, the, yeah. the tallest building in the, in the Near East. This, yeah, this, this building? Really? Yeah. 45 meters. So sorry, it was... 1928 it was built? 19, yeah, 1928 completed. 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 So, so this was the tallest structure for yeah, almost for three decades. Yeah. Yes, almost three decades. Yeah. Wow. And a, and a real and, feat. And, and he designed it himself. Correct, exactly. My father designed it, but it, he designed it as a corporate building for his business. Then he converted it into a family house. I see. So this and was initially for died, the four. converted now to a cultural center. But he, so he it has three lives. That's what. It so do you know anything about the reasons it was designed this way? Was it a personal decision? I want the tallest structure. Well, yes. Also from an engineering standpoint, this was the first steel reinforced building, uh, mm. either in Lebanon or mm. was it in the Middle East? In, uh, Lebanon. in, in Lebanon, exactly. The first so concrete building. Correct. They used to build with the sand line yeah. stones. I mean, we, we have a lot of great yeah. reference photos where you see the background of Ashafi is just small Lebanese houses with yeah. orange roofs. And this was, you know, the Zahadid of its time, if we're to compare. I, I'm glad you said Zahadid <laughs> because I actually... She used to I, visit here, actually. Sorry? She used to visit. Yeah, she used to oh, visit, visit here, really. So this 1930s, Ashafi is empty. Yeah. Olive, olive, orchards, olive trees, olive trees, olive trees, nothing else. Okay, so he, so Zaha Hadid would come to. I mean, to but in the in the recent years, not, yeah, <laughs> not yeah, that yeah, long yeah. ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but um, can, did, what, was the location important at all? Did yeah, you, you know why he built it on the street? Yeah, or? actually, the, initially he wanted to build it uh, at Masses. the corner of the museum, but they mm. didn't allow him to build it because they were afraid you the building might fall. The municipality oh. said it's so tall, it's it might so fall and kill people. They, That's they, great. Yeah, there was no faith <laughs> that the steel license. reinforced building would actually stand. So, so this was meant to be where Mathaf? Facing Mathaf, on the opposite corner. Facing yeah. Mathaf. Another park in this, the parking lot. That's so funny. So he pulled it back and built it here. On a less important It was out in nowhere, as you see the picture. Oh, that's great. It's but but Madhab Square was with was, was pedestrians, and the municipality thought such a tall building will collapse and will kill people. <laughs> they thought it was a hazard to yeah. society. You know, it's, it's consistent. Yeah, consistently <laughs> wrong. It's like, this is too big. I've never seen something like yeah. this. 45 that's meters a, high. That's what I'd like to say. He was impressed by sure. the buildings in New York, and since he represented American firms, Correct. 
Uh, you had to build a building. So th- but there's a bit of an innocence there. I like that. The municipality is afraid, literally. But three, four, five, six stories? Nine. Not, well, yeah, sorry. Nine. Nine. Eight to nine. No, six. It's, it's nine and then. Seven. Nine. Yeah, six and a half. Seven. Basically <laughs> less than ten. Less than ten. Less than ten. <laughs> and, and it's dangerous. Yeah. You know, now you... And now we have like Sama Beirut, which is 120 sure. uh, yeah, meters. They've never seen it. Yeah. So he, he got this idea from New York. Yeah, so he had adopted the idea from New York, and as mm-hmm. I repeat, uh, at the time, Art Deco was uh, paid a lot of attention to detail, very specifically the motifs that you see in the building. But again, one of a very impressive uh, thing to mention is that he designed all of the details of the building, the floor plans, the elevations. He designed it like this. Even even he drew it. He was not an architect. Yeah. He drew this and but, he gave it but to But he, he was a good drawer, though. He, yeah, was, he, he, he was, was an he was artist. A great artist yeah. Yeah, we have paintings for him, books for him, we have speeches on him. He was a multidisciplinary man, yeah, but he, including do you, do a you building know, designer. Well, can I ask you? I mean, I, I, I don't know enough about Art Deco hmm. other than geometry matters. <laughs> but is this based on a particular building in New York? Uh, well, look, at the time, you can reference a lot of buildings similar to it, like the Bullshock Wire building in the United States. There's a lot of buildings that have a similar typology, but okay. they don't have a similar uh, aesthetic finish. Right. Meaning also to see a white building, purely painted white, back then, mm. and now, especially in Lebanon, when they were only building in stone, was also a right. very innovative thing. Right. But the most important thing is that this building is built on a module of 4 by 10 meters, which was designed around the vehicle. So if you walk through the floor plan, since this building was designed for show, showcasing cars, hmm. the facade was initially open onto the street. So of the cars so the were cars, parked, so right. the cars, you could drive the car in, park it diagonally, vertically, however you might need to, to right. be able to showcase it to the street. Okay, so the whole point is bringing cars It was designed that. around the vehicle, precisely. That's interesting. And the street facade is a lot more articulate as opposed to the garden facade because the garden facade was facing what you now see as a garden. A three time, the, the garden was three times the size. It was connected all the way to the parking mm. and there were hangars built because the cars would arrive in pieces. So they would have to assemble. That's where the, the concept of the assembly began. They would assemble the cars and bring them in through the back door, which has now become the garden facade. They, they would do that? Yeah, that's they exactly what happened. We have pictures of coming we have photos of uh, Justin Chassis. Yeah, the cars would come in pieces. So when the war actually, actually uh, happened, they were stealing parts of cars as metal, not as cars, because they didn't know the what it was. the Civil War? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Oh, so, so there the were Civil still War. cars? Yeah, yeah and everything Cars, spare parts, hundreds of thousands of eye pieces, so all gone. We just have a few headlamp, hand lamps left. Yeah, because the lighting on the interior was designed with car parts, and we yeah. still have like you, the original the floor lamps around the ceiling. Really, the, the Model yeah. T lights. We actually have a Model T in the yeah. garden. So we're we're, we're wow. restaging a lot of things with that atmosphere, with the concept of you know but the vehicle. He retired. It was what he was in nineteen thirty four. Thirty four. Thirty five. He completely dismantled his role in the company. Mm. Got out mm-hmm. of it. He he gave it to his closest friends and yeah. and the top employees. But the building was no longer associated with. No, no, no. It, it, it turned into a family house in thirty six. He added, he removed the elevator. Yeah, he, he, but he, he got kept, married. But yeah. he kept the car components, or that was just like no storage. Uh, yeah, he, he storage kept space. Them, yeah. Okay, I mean, I see. They, 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 they love to collect items. Yeah, I see. They were, which, I see. David, Rami. His father, his grandfather. Yeah. We have paintings from the 1800s. We have sketches yeah. from the 1800s. Sketches from from, from the grandfather from the university mm-hmm. classes yeah. in Roma. You know. Which is wow. hugely advantageous for us now. If you're opening a museum in a cultural center, we have every, every item matters. Of course, so we have hundreds of thousands. So this is, in a sense, a museum in itself. It just, correct, correct. Yeah. And as as uh, the Davy was saying, the building took on three very important lifespans, or mm. maybe two. Mm. So the first was the, it was the Ford Company, and then it turned into a private house. 
And right. when you look at the scope of the building as a family house, incredible. I mean, if we take you through the, <laughs> the building bedrooms. now, you notice there are, there are new partitions because it used to be one large open floor right. plan for the right. cars. And then it yeah. became dining rooms, living rooms, bathrooms, mm-hmm. janitor rooms, food elevators. And cinema even at room. the 20s, yeah. you know, they had a cinema room, they had hand drives. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was, they were always, always a man of innovation. Did, did you, do you remember growing up in that kind of building and thinking this is different? <laughs> I mean, because I so I, I'm asking you. I, I spoke, mean, I had years in the garden, right? I spoke to Roderick Sirso about growing up in Sirso Palace, and he said something which is important. I think it didn't occur to me. He said, "You know, a kid doesn't know anything yeah. else, so this is home." You took it for granted. You take yeah. it for granted. You don't really think about it, but yeah. later you realize, yeah, this is different. Yes, later on when you become yeah, a teenager. So actually, you, even yeah. the, our schoolmates, we used to invite them here. They said that these people live in a very different <laughs> way. <laughs> but did, did, I mean, do you remember the moment where you said this no, is something? No, but because amazing. of this house, because yeah. of my father's writings and so on, people considered my father as being an eccentric because mm. he didn't follow any of mm. the stereotypes of that period. So we were the sons of the eccentric uh, writer. Of the, yeah, right. So right. we took it for granted, we didn't know. But your father lived until 1963, Three. and you, I mean, do you remember his later years here? Was it, I mean, that, I, I don't know if that's a fair but assessment. I was studying in Germany when he died. But you, you, you mentioned he was hermetic to a point, that he stayed alone. Is that true, that he was literally alone in the fourth, yeah. the, in oh, the top, top floor? Uh, he was in the top floor. My mother lived, mm-hmm. and my sisters lived with them. My brother and myself were studying in Germany at university. But did he play any No, he role? wasn't a lonely person. No. Yeah. But he didn't have a social life anymore. He received in his apartment on the fourth floor uh, the few friends he liked. Uh, there mm. were four mm. or five. Mm. His, uh, another lawyer, Michel Lutfi from Tripoli, who, who actually helped us to print all his complete works. Mm. And uh, he just... And, but his big pleasure was seeing his kids, because yeah. my little sisters were with him, they are younger than us. Mm. And I was studying with my brother in Germany. I'm an architect and my brother a civil engineer. Mm. And we had not finished our studies when he dropped dead from a heart attack. You he were abroad six, when he passed away? He was 68, yeah. 1963, he was 68. 1963. And you, you were here when he passed away? No, I was in Germany, in Germany. studying. Yeah. They called us. There wasn't no, no mobile phone. Until you can get a communication in the yeah. 60s, you have to call the operator, wait day, to yeah. connect you. And in any case, we made it just on the time for the funeral. And what is very funny about this house, <laughs> I always say as a joke, uh, if you have a, if you don't feel well, you can go walk to Hotel Dieu, which is a hospital here, <laughs> next door. And if you die, you walk to the cemetery, which is also next door. And if you want to be cultured, you go to the museum. In the middle between the hospital and the cemetery. Well, that's the end of the story. But you come back before the Civil War starts. Yeah. 1975. And I remember, from just from what you told me, and I remember reading about this, that the... The foundation, that the home, the building, was looted. In Not only looted, it was occupied by different uh, militias. You sure and, testing and then destroyed sh- because it, it was shelled. From use it as a testing ground. As a war target, war target, practice artillery bomb. and bullets. Uh, so really, so this building was was punctured and it, it, burned because and it's not protected. It's freestanding. Yeah. Yeah. So when Ashrafi went with their the sh- shelling the East Beirut, yeah. it went through our building. When the other side shot, it was going through the building. This building was 
uh, half destroyed. But you, you we like came and, re and restored it just to its shape. But the real work now to make the foundation is now taking place. Yeah. But those 15 years, you were not in Lebanon. No. And you come back in 2000, and you're, I mean, this is your childhood home. Did you want to turn this into a sort of no, a no, not at all. No, no, no. no. This was our family house. Yeah. And uh, of course, this house had a past as a headquarter corporate building, you know. But you did not anticipate that this would become a never. cultural center no, or anything never, like never. that. So and when did the decision come for you to say? Very I want recently, to... when we came back, two thousand twenty. It's what twenty years ago, yeah. Almost yeah. Two thousand one, yeah. yeah? Uh, it didn't fit us. Neither my brother nor I to to live in it. Mm. We couldn't live four families, me and my brother and my two sisters and my mother in this house. We, mm, were, mm. we were married, we had kids and so on. Yeah. So each one went and lived somewhere. So this house, we turned into an office, that's all. The rest was empty. So but this is the only space that was used yeah, regularly? Yeah, this yeah. office was the only place. The rest right. was secured because we, we rebuilt it. We put the windows, we put everything, but we didn't give it any function. Mm -hmm, hoping mm -hmm. that one day we'll see and so on. It was a storage, and, yeah. And suddenly, with time passing, we realized suddenly we are getting very old. What happens if we drop dead tomorrow? <laughs> it's a big burden on our kids. Will they want to repair it? Uh, will they have the money to do it? And so on. We said, we owe it to my father. He has given us so much to, to give something to in his memory. Yeah, And we decided to turn it into a cultural center uh, actually, it's registered now in the state at the foundation, Charlescombe Foundation. This is a cultural center. We can tell you all the ingredients of this culture, which is going to be really something worth uh, seeing when I hope you'll come back. Oh, I definitely will. Yeah. I, I, but I, and, and we decided only two years ago because we said, my God, we are coming too old. So this was really just a way to say goodbye. Yeah, to, to make yeah. sure that it survives yeah. in, in, yeah. a, in appropriate... And, and we made a very good decision in that sense that as long as we are running the show uh, with these wonderful boys and maybe some other people soon when we open, uh, no problem. My brother and myself, he's also very active, you'll see him. Uh, we, can, we can do, hopefully, a few years. Mm -hmm. But after us, such an institution should be run by, by, by an institution. You cannot right. give it to someone who will also get old and die and who pays from his own money. We made a deal with the Jesuit University, who are next door, mm. and I am an alumni, my father is an alumni. It's Saint Joseph. Saint Joseph. They, they will run the... Yeah. 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 They will have... They will, but only after we both die. Right. Well, hopefully you're not going to die too, anytime to die. soon. <laughs> the issue of neutrality and that wide discussion that is it's an old debate here, it's, a, it's an issue that resurfaces every now and then. And before we started recording, you said that you, you used to try to drive that point home, that Lebanon should enshrine neutrality in its foreign policy. And then you brought up a, a conversation about meeting my father at a seminar on that subject. Can you tell me a bit about that seminar, maybe the interaction you had with him and what the appeal is to neutrality from your perspective? I have uh, not only a lot of respect for your dad, and I always regretted that I met him so late in his life, because I, I came back here in 2001, rebuilt here, and this was an architectural mm. practice. Mm -hmm. We have now 
reduced it to almost nothing. But we were trying to work as an architect and engineer. But I was always uh, obsessed by this idea, Lebanon should once get out of the grip of regional powers. Yeah. Iran, Saudi, Syria, they all, Israel, they all want a piece of this land. Actually, it's true, it's a beautiful country. Yeah? God gave us the most beautiful country in Madrid, we, gave, we turned it into a garbage. Yeah? Uh, he gave the poor Maktoum a desert with snakes and not a tree, he made it a world destination, Dubai. Yeah? No, that different. We had a paradise. That's a hundred years of history in we, one sentence. We, have a, we had a paradise: <laughs> mountains, snow, valleys, uh, the sea. We did a dump. We have it a garbage dump. And the other guy, because he has a vision, this Maktoum, huh? I don't know, <laughs> he turned the desert into a world destination. So I was very involved in trying to get this country in another set. Uh, the, the, the feudal, I would call it the feudal, uh, called capitalistic and, and corrupt society that I, that I lived I was brought up in Europe, in Germany, and all these people, they were saying they have been abroad, they know how the world is, yeah? Most of them. I don't know if that's true. No, I think a lot not of all, but there, there are groups, but some, but, but some, some of the yeah. leaders yeah. know what they are talking about. Yeah. They have workshops about about legal matters, about this I think and the that. world has just gotten smaller and smaller yes, because exactly. people... Through, through yeah. internet, yeah. yeah. Since I was known, I, I had a group of friends who were all thinking about, a think tank about the neutrality of Lebanon, a status like Switzerland, yeah? Mm-hmm. And one day, the Swiss embassy sent me an invitation to a seminar at the Phoenician Hotel, uh, sponsored by the Swiss embassy and, and the Austrian embassy, both are neutral countries. And I said, how come? They said, yes, we know you are very active. Because as I told you, I interviewed everybody, trying to find somebody interested in this. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you make a referendum, I think no Lebanese would say no. But it's only the leaders who don't, who have no interest in this. So I went to this, uh, we were only, they they had a very interesting seminar because they had invited from every party one guy to speak. One, Mm -hmm. One for the Druze, one for future, Maybe was your father representing future? No. He was Hadidi's advisor. Yeah. Okay, so he was yeah. so representing he was, the But this is when Hadidi is not here. Yeah. I was not invited to talk. I was invited among 30 people who were mostly journalists. Uh-huh. But I was the only one who had been consistently yeah. hammering this uh, issue about yeah. Lebanon should be al-Hiyad on the side, not involved with the, yeah. with the issues of their neighbors and so on. Maybe some people consider that such a wrong because we should be fighters and... Uh, <laughs> I mean, you hear endless, endless yeah. perspectives on what even neutrality means. Yeah. But, but you sense that there was, that it was a desirable policy. And that seminar, you spoke to my father, I'm assuming you met him. You're referring to Switzerland. Did you think that that model is the model maybe that your father could have chosen, but chose something that he thought would be more embracing as opposed to divisive. At that time, they were idealistic. They thought we can make a democratic state. They didn't think about neutrality, right. about all this. So Switzerland today is, I mean, probably the, one of the few countries where local affairs matters more. That they their newspaper articles are about whether the train was on time or whether a cow crossed the rail. I mean, or, yeah. or maybe... A, but local municipality budget 
And you don't tend to see geopolitics in yes. the debate. All this time it was nagging me, why this country can't be left alone? Why can't they leave us in peace to build up a democratic society? And after having seen how Switzerland functions with four languages, four languages... Which is more different than us, and it's, yes. I mean... And but they, if they, they succeeded surviving two world wars around them, yeah, yeah. where millions of people, French, Germans, killed themselves, and not a Swiss stabbed another, yeah... German Swiss, French Swiss, Italian Swiss. I said, this is the model. And I lived in Switzerland many years. I had all the warriors, my office in Zurich, hmm. because I speak German. Hmm. And I said, these people, they might be not the most funny people in the world, no. but they have made a system that really is democratic. You know, they have tiny issues. They vote for them in their town and their village. Hmm. It's, it's even a bit exaggerated. I, I've seen news articles about currencies that only exist in certain municipalities. Yeah, that they, 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 they make a referendum about yeah. any issue, yeah. yeah, which is a little bit going but too you, far. But you would, today, in 2019, given what's happening throughout the country, not just in downtown, do you think that that model is still the right model? Or do you think Lebanon is past that? No, I think it would be probably the only model that will secure all the components of Lebanon because mm. it does not uh, give uh, any power to one over the other. Actually, we, we should not forget Lebanon is a collection of minorities. That goes to the second point. That's, which why, is, that's why Switzerland is also a collection of different, but do you even think, different languages. Do you yeah. think sectarianism, which has defined Lebanon through its Ottoman past, through its French mandate, and through its modern history, do you think sectarianism will survive this moment. And I'm curious about the average protester seems to be, this is my interpretation, seems to be against sectarianism. You see you see chance for secularism, but I don't know what that would look like here. And I'm curious from your perspective, 80 years of history yourself. Of observing. Of observing and of maybe trying to participate at times. Mm, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Do you think secularism, the way we know it in Europe, is on the horizon here? Or do you think it'll be a sort of a, a different form of sectarian, secular governance, the way, in a, in a way, something very different than what we're used to? You try to also produce, uh, suppose that you have a federal system also where each one feels he's contributing to his own community. Mm. So even the United States is a federal so, country. So Lebanon will end up, some, in, in the ideal situation, there's a geographic federalism it's that emerges. So, tiny, it's yeah. really, so yeah. what does it look like to you, though? I'm curious. What, what I mean, you ask me if I believe it will happen. Yeah. It's, I would say it's only a dream. If it happens, it will be for our kids and grandchildren and grandchildren a secure shelter forever, if it doesn't uh, work, I dread the worst, because... But just just the last, I'm all, yeah. only one step further, yeah. does it look like a geography division, or is it a sectarian division, if, if it were to be applied? In other words, is the north on its own, or is Tripoli on its own? Well, if you, if you take in, in these countries that have a neutral mm. system, like Switzerland and Austria and Sweden, they are divided into, into yeah. smaller states, yeah? right? right. Uh, the French and the Germans in Switzerland, they have yeah. their rules, their That's language, true. and so yeah. on. Uh, I don't see why shouldn't, for instance, uh, a Maronite and Junier uh, uh, abide to the laws of a strict uh, 
Shia guy in 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 Nabatiya, you know, mm-hmm. that everyone have his own cup of tea. But see, the, what you said right now is the if, to me it's the bottom line, which is geography and sect. They often overlap, but they don't always. No, but they could be a piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. They, they, they don't see them as, as opponents. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. different. But instead of being fighting each other, we, we connect together. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but you, so you're drawing the line on geography yeah. more than anything. I'm, I'm yes, assuming yeah. geography. Yeah. Although I see it's ridiculous because the country is 10,000 square kilometers. Right. But we are a reduced scale model of a big country. <laughs> a reduced scale, like, you well, know, only an architect, architects think, make scale, scale that's, model. That's right? actually a perfect architect way of dissecting. That's what I said. <laughs> we scaling. work on scale models. Scaling, yeah. Lebanon is a scale model of a big country. What? This is the skyscraper of Beirut. <laughs> <laughs> but in New York, it's just a little building. Yeah, it's a yeah, townhouse. It's a townhouse, yeah. Of course. So that's what it is. There, yeah. there are things that yeah. don't apply that apply for Brazil. Brazil is also a, sure. a, yeah, yeah. a country, federal country, mm. which is huge. I mean, yeah. we, we can fit in one city. Yeah. The whole in, 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 in Sao Paulo, Lebanon will, will fit in Sao Paulo. But you but, would like your But grand- some principles are the same. Leave us alone. We want to rule ourselves. We want to have a democratic system. We want to be friends with everything, even with those people that I don't really sympathize with. I, I respect everybody. Now, if the Iranians are happy with the regime, good for them, but I don't think they are happy. Do you but it's none of my business. Would you be fearful of a secular state emerging here? No. Would you have any caution Not towards that? So you'd be comfortable with a secular government? And I hope the young people in Martyr Square will bring it slowly into existence. So a secular federal state yeah. is the ideal situation. Don't you think this country deserves to get rid of, of the clergy of different religions that that interfere in its affair? For me, as, as being raised as a, in a democratic society in Germany, France, and so on, Lebanon should be non, non-sectarian, should be neutral and secular. Yeah. Now, is there anybody who has anything against it? It means it respects everybody's belief. Hmm. You can, I always said religion should be like my bank account in my bank. It's none of my business where you have your money, hmm. with Bank Audi or with... The, my religion is between me and, and God if I believe in him. It has nothing to do. I don't want to impose it on the others. The others don't have to impose it on me. So if we want to live with different beliefs and different religions, let's make out of it a, a hmm. mosaic. Hmm. I don't know what was the idea of your father because he died too too fast after I met him. Mm. After his speech, mm. I tell you, if I had written it, I wouldn't have added one word. Yeah, mm. I didn't know him at that time. I went to the pulpit and embraced him and really? kissed him. Yeah, <laughs> I said, Mister Shada, I never met you, but I hope that we will meet. And we never met because he died not too far after. That. It was just after he had written the letter to Rouhani. Yes. He was for the neutrality, no? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think, uh, yes, and he was. He, he, yes, I know. He wrote, he wrote about thing. it, and he. I didn't see anything in yeah. him that could upset or offend anybody in his in his uh, uh, political career. He was a, a very forthcoming and very open-minded to everybody. I don't see anything that he did in his political career that could deserve in inverted commas that he gets eliminated. The way you described your father alone in the roof of this building, writing and uh, disappointed, I I don't know if my had my father not been assassinated, 
what his later years would have looked like. But I think, I think so. I think he would have. I been, think he started being disappointed when he made this speech. There was a there was definitely a sense of disappointment, yeah, yeah. and I think he enjoyed most of his time reflecting, and some sometimes writing. Uh, what he thought Lebanon should look like, and and yeah. and I think he was at his best when he was left to his thoughts. Yeah. He, he even wrote uh, very interesting things to the United Nations. Yeah, he uh, uh, definitely tried his trying best. To, trying to yeah. to to plead the cause of Lebanon with the UN. I, because uh, he he was he lived in the states. He knew his way around there. He was one. Today, I wish we had somebody like him who would stand up and negotiate. We we lack a leader who would spoke without being having strings attached to any foreign power. Well, these are very nice words from you, and I'm glad you got to meet him. Thank you for your time. It's a thrill to know more about your father, about this place. I hope to come back when it's done. I love the garden in the back. Driving by, never thinking I'd ever go inside. So yeah. it's a, it's a thrill for me. And you guys, Joe, Elias, thank you for explaining a bit about the archive material here. There will be a li library dedication to Charles Cudham's literary works, and I think... And collection. Uh, and collection? Great. Um, and also... We have all his works published, all that. And I can only suggest something, it's none of my business. I hope every room of this place includes a photo of what it looked like. Because it would be nice <laughs> to walk around. If, 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 if yes, it's a wonderful person. He's so keen, as much as myself and my brother, in preserving the spirit of this uh, building. I mean, that's a superficial suggestion, but it would be nice to be able to walk through this building and see it in its He's original state. about this, and that's what we love him. So, yeah. He didn't know that either. He didn't know my father, but he identifies with this project like if it was his own baby. I grew up in two areas, Ras Beirut and here. And I think both parts of Beirut have something that stands out, yeah. and today is dwarfed. I grew up next to the old lighthouse, the end of Bliss, mm -hmm. behind the German school. Mm -hmm. That tiny little black and white thing mm -hmm. today is so small compared to the towers. Mm -hmm. But it was the tallest structure in yeah. that part of Beirut for a long time. True. This building, the tallest structure in the, mid another, in the Near East, in, in this part of the world for maybe three decades. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to kind of go back in time. And I like seeing photos of what this place looked like. I hope it's included down the road. Again, thank you for your time. It was an honor to meet you. Please stay in touch. Mm -hmm.